Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, I know a number of people who are doing important, interesting, and powerful things, and they all got their start because one person got them engaged when they were young. And there was also a feisty state legislator who often found ways to push his caucus, even in a sometimes hostile environment. And there was a local uh, taxpayer activist who fought against tax hikes when few others would. Oh, and a county treasurer trying to keep fiscal sanity uh, or, or sorry, a township treasurer trying to keep uh, fiscal sanity in his local government. He's all the same person, and that uh, is Leandro Lett, and we're going to talk about some different ways to shift the Overton window and how to negotiate within it. Leon, welcome. Hey, James, thanks for having me. How did you get into the policy business? Boy, uh, well, as a high school student, I went to see... Uh, Ronald Reagan speak at our local community college here mm -hmm. in Macomb County, and uh, he spoke a language that uh, I hadn't heard before from most people in the political arena, mm -hmm. which was, you know, government not as a uh, solution, but as a problem. And that sort of sparked my interest into uh, what role government really should have. Uh, and, you know, are, is government a source of solutions, a source of problems, or some combination thereof? I think it was, you know, I guess Ronald Reagan that got me interested in thinking of the ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, what'd you do from there? Well, I went to study political science at Oakland University, uh, where I didn't learn as much as I could have learned. Issues like the Overton window were not discussed. I don't think uh, the Overton window had been invented yet, though. Maybe. You know, most of political science hadn't been invented yet, but I was <laughs> but, uh, but not just the Overton window, but public choice theory and... All these ideas that I learned subsequently, I mean, unfortunately, in political science in my era, you learn about the parliamentary system of Australia or mm -hmm. something like that. Uh, so I didn't learn really what makes politics tick. Where I learned what makes politics tick was I uh, started working on political campaigns in my area and then eventually managing political campaigns and then working in the state legislature as a staffer for a number of different state lawmakers uh, with very different approaches on how they approach their jobs in the state legislature and uh, sort of learned on the ground uh, about political campaigns and about the policy end after the campaigns are over in the legislative arena. What do you mean by different political approaches? Well, things that work well in political campaigns are not always the things that work well in the political arena, in the, in the policy arena. Uh, you know, people who are successful in campaigns oftentimes have a very different skill set than people who are successful in the policy arena. Somebody who is a great candidate doesn't always make a great elected official and vice versa. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, um, we've talked about or we mentioned in the introduction that you've done a lot of different things. What do you consider your biggest policy victory? Well, I would I would say I've got. A number of them, but the two that probably most people would say are, are, are the most significant policy victories are two state constitutional amendments that I was able to uh, be, you know, in the center of. One was the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative. That was a, a petition-based effort 
to amend the Michigan Constitution uh, through a petition drive and putting the issue on the ballot that would ban uh, governments in Michigan from using people's uh, race, gender, ethnicity, or national origin uh, for uh, in their benefit or in their detriment. In other words, to you know, grant no discrimination uh, for or against people on their ethnic background, their gender background, that sort of thing. And that passed in uh, 2006. Uh, it was you know amended the Michigan Constitution. At the same time, I worked on a constitutional amendment that made it through a legislative arena with two thirds vote in both the House and Senate placed on the ballot that passed that restrained the use of eminent domain of the government to take uh, people's personal property for um, non-public purposes. Um, so there was two constitutional amendments that I think were very significant. So you had a big 2006. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But what were your roles in these uh, in those different amendments? Because uh, they went through different paths. They had different supports. They had different coalitions. What exactly did you do to help them out? Well, there are two different roles. Uh, the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative, anything dealing with uh, race is a controversial issue, obviously. And this was a very uh, amendment that was very people felt very passionate for or against. You know, essentially the issue is quote unquote affirmative action, um, which you know some also call race preferencing. And the bad initiative, the political class wanted nothing to do with. They don't want to have to take a position on sorry uh, race preferences What's and the political action. class. Uh, the political class would be anybody who's Involved in policy making uh, as a as a as pretty much a full time position, whether it's a lobbying corps, uh, the legislators themselves, elected officials, uh, staff folks, mm -hmm. uh, interest groups, they wanted nothing to do with this. Uh, and the public uh, had already made up their minds on this issue. You couldn't talk to anybody who didn't have an opinion, right or you know, for or against the issue of affirmative action and race preferences. Mm -hmm. Uh, so those of us that believe that the government should not involve, be involved in race preferencing uh, knew that we could not get this issue through the political machine. It was not going to get a two-thirds vote in the House and Senate mm -hmm. to put on the ballot. There was not going to be a lobbying effort that was going to have any effect. Uh, so we went around. As in like, machine. you could ask them to do it, but they're not, it's not getting a committee hearing. It's not, uh, not getting votes. Uh, everyone no. wants to run away from this thing. Everyone wants to stay away from as far yeah. as they can. So I was, uh, worked with a number of other important folks, including a, a lady named Jennifer Graff, who had sued the University of Michigan and won when she had been denied, uh, admissions as a result of her ethnicity. Uh, and uh, we started a campaign that took three years, essentially, to collect the necessary signatures. And my job was the chair of the signature effort, and we, uh, essentially to help raise the financial resources and coordinate a lot of elements of the campaign to get this issue on the ballot, uh, which, again, took a number of years to do. There's a lot of court challenges, and mm -hmm. every imaginable stumbling block was put in our way. Uh, and Wait, uh, tell me about some of those that. stumbling blocks, because, I mean, this this should theoretically be easy. Like, this is how people have access to the ballot. You just go around, you collect signatures for what you want. No one can stop you from doing that, right? Uh, no one can stop you from doing that, but they can't. <laughs> uh, try to do that through uh, using the legal system, using the uh, any spot in the process. For example, we have to get the... Uh, the language for the ballot initiative approved by the State Board of Canvassers. 
uh, and eventually get these signatures after the Secretary of State checks them for validity. Uh, then the State Board of Canvassers, if they're if there's enough valid signatures, have to vote for them ballot. Well, the State Board of Canvassers consists of two appointed Democrats and two appointed Republicans, and frankly, they were not all that concerned about signatures or validity or citizens' rights as much as they were concerned about making sure their position on this uh, issue is what they voted on, not their job as a state board of canvassers. So you've got a, we had to go to court to get the state board of canvassers be ordered by the courts to put this on the ballot after we had collected signatures. Then there's a number of court challenges. There, there are judges who are uh, very opinionated in these issues, and they're looking to side with one position or the other. So we had a judge, you know, throw us off the, uh, you know, the ballot because he didn't think the signature has been collected when his mind was fairly. And then we had another reinstated, uh, you know, by uh, an appeals. Mm-hmm. So endless court battles. You've got to have tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars set aside to bail your way through the court. Uh, and that's the first place they try and stop citizen issues. There's one place they try and stop citizen initiatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you wind up winning those courses and get it, or those cases and getting it put on the ballot? Ultimately, won all the cases, got it put on the ballot. After it was voted and approved by uh, a great majority of, of citizens, it was then challenged in federal courts. Mm-hmm. The initiative. Uh, so we had to. Uh, we were eventually the initiative was uh, was was uh, rendered moot. Uh, by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. We had then to appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, we appeared before the U.S. Supreme Court and prevailed. Mm-hmm. So something as simple, not simple, a ballot initiative to change the Constitution, the state Constitution, end up ultimately twice uh, the issue before the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of barriers. Okay. Not all of them are that difficult, all right. but <laughs> this one was. And uh, what you, I mean, you're not a lawyer, so what is your role when you're when you're doing this? I mean, you've said got to find people to collect signatures, got to find some people to fund this thing, got to. What else do you do? Well, you got to be something of a campaign manager mm-hmm. and how you allocate resources, mm-hmm. uh, and that's just basic fundamentals. Should you put money for this or that or the other thing? But a lot of the job is uh, is a strategist, and as a strategist, you're trying to understand people's incentives, and align their incentives uh, to make progress on any particular political issue, whether it's a constitutional amendment or simply an amendment to a bill in the legislature, a change in a local ordinance. Mm-hmm. The first thing you have to try to understand is what are the, uh, what is the viewpoint and incentives of the other people in that arena? And if I understand them, how can I look for a way to make uh, the policy idea I care about a winner for that because mm-hmm. people, you know, uh, scientists have done some genetic studies on elected officials and politicians, and it turns out that they're almost indistinguishable from human beings. <laughs> uh, and, and, and as human beings, uh, we tend to act in our interest, whether it's what house we want to buy or what car we're going to buy. You know, most people don't buy the car that's in the best interest of society. They buy the car that's going to work for their family, get their kids to school or, you know, their work truck or whatever they might need. And politicians generally vote for what's in their best interest just because they're human beings. So understanding what's in their interests 
And if necessary, changing what's in your interest is how you can shape the outcome of public policy. All right. So let's talk a little bit about that for the other ballot initiative that you helped work on, the one for eminent domain. This one, you didn't have to go it alone. There was some interest. What was your role? And well, uh, in this case, there was a uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision uh, that the U.S. Supreme Court essentially ruled that local units of governments could take people's private property, like their home, from them, give it to another private owner uh, if that other private owner would create a public benefit like bigger tax revenue. So in theory, in, in this case, uh, you know, the government could take your home, give it to a developer of an apartment complex who would build an apartment complex and therefore generate more tax revenue, and that was considered a public interest. Well, outrage on that uh, decision, public outrage on that decision, created a... Um, a, a a need, or rather a uh, uh, incentive for state governments to say, well, that might be federally allowable, but people are upset. We've got to make sure that we're looking like we care about this. Yeah. Now, I want to stop you on that, because that's the thing that moved the window. Like, if you were talking before that decision, and you asked state lawmakers, hey, do you want to do something about this eminent domain? They'd say, no, our local governments uh, want to have this power. They want to be able to to take your land to, to do what they want with it for whatever reason that they want. And then this Supreme Court case came out, and everyone said, wait a second, that's not right guys, can you do something about this? And so what was impossible to do instantly became something that was within the window. Yes, and within the window is a, you know, there's a range, obviously, mm-hmm. in, the, in the Overton window. And in this range, the politicians' interests were to... And you were a politician at this time. That's right, I was a state lawmaker at the time yeah. in Michigan. And, uh, you know, the, the interest of, of state lawmakers was to demonstrate to voters that they were outraged by this and they cared. Um, but you could do that in any number of ways. You, you could pay, you could simply pass something that expresses that outrage but doesn't really have that much teeth, all the way to you could take a very uh, aggressive and strict role in limiting the government's power to take people's private property. And, in you know, uh, like it or not, the great number of elected officials didn't care which. They just needed to satisfy their need, which is to look like they cared and were doing something. And so you have a wide range of outcomes across the states. Some states went that path and just passed things that looked like they were doing something. Uh, I was in a fortunate so position. So what, what were some of those things that you could do? Well, you just create loopholes. Mm-hmm. So you say, no, this cannot be done unless some local agency declares it blighted. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and the definition of your house being blighted could be anything. Mm-hmm. So they created a strong-sounding initiative with a big backdoor loophole mm-hmm. that was easily exploited. But if you just read the surface of the amendment, you didn't know that that, that blight loophole, for example, mm-hmm. uh, was so big, you would think, wow, they, they just took a strong stand. Stopping people's homes from being taken. You could communicate the same message about a strong amendment as a weak amendment in that case. Just say, I did yeah. something about this, regardless of whether you did anything that was uh, that had teeth or not. In, in campaign flyer the next election would say, I passed this amendment that would stop this. Mm-hmm. And it's not in the last with it. You don't have to put an asterisk saying, except it really doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so my, my intent was to seize that momentum. Uh, in the legislative arena and pass an actual 
property protection amendment. Uh, and it was compared to the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative, it was you know, relatively easy because the momentum was there. We needed two-thirds in the House, two-thirds in the Senate. And, and that got, meant that you had to get bipartisan support too, right? Bipartisan support. And uh, it's a bipartisan issue at the, among the public. Um, so it wasn't really a, a hyperpartisan issue. So the real challenge was sneaking the, you know, sneaking the real amendment through the legislature, sneaking something substantial through the legislature. And I was in a position as a chair of a committee that, uh, and I had a good relationship with the leadership in the House, that they handed the ball to me on the issue and said, well, you run with this uh, and, you know, keep us posted. <laughs> and so I worked with a number of organizations in the uh, in the policy arena, including the Mackinac Center, which did a great job of helping. Thank you. Uh, including some other national organizations that helped out as well, some private attorneys that, you know, we brought in who were experts on eminent domain, and uh, crafted a very strong property rights protection. But I needed two-thirds. I had to get Democrats. So I worked closely with my Democratic colleague on the committee, minority vice chair, to find out what that what were important to Democrats with private property protection. Issues that we I didn't think about in my district, like what happens if your property is taken for a bridge and you're a renter? Well, it might be that private property protections will protect the owner of your apartment mm-hmm. and make sure that they get properly compensated or their rights are protected. But are there any rights that extend to who are evicted essentially due to uh, government takings? Mm-hmm. So working protection... And that was for, a... An actual important concern because they were built working on building a bridge at this time. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, my Democratic colleagues who represented the area were very in tune with that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people uh, in the other areas of the state were not quite as well in tune with that. So learning what was important to them, working with them and incorporating it in. I mean, you could almost say that the Constitutional Amendment on Eminent Domain in Michigan is the is a, a rare as a unicorn because it worked as if it it worked like it should <laughs> it worked like in the textbooks and nothing ever does i mean there was a there's public uh interest there was a legislative response to that public interest mm-hmm. there was principal people who cared and there was mm-hmm. bipartisan work and out came a good policy this never happens <laughs> I wouldn't say it never happens. Uh, Listeners of this podcast will know that there are some really, there are a lot of unicorns that are out there that exist and are roaming free right now and and doing good work. uh, I guess it contrasts dramatically with the the disparity that exists between public demand on the race preferences issue Mm -hmm. and the lack of interest in doing the overturn will be somewhat different on the political side. Mm -hmm. Well, I do want to talk a little bit about what you said of one of the drivers for why uh, these, a lot of other states pass something that only looks like it reforms. And you said that it's because politicians don't often care, but it sounds like they care. Like why, <laughs> what, what's the disparity here? Well, they care about doing what is necessary to, to, you know, help their careers and advance their position. And it was not necessary to have a real public, uh, you know, private property protection, eminent domain protection, it was necessary to appear to care and appear to have done something. And, you know, oftentimes that's easier. 
you know, than actually trying to work out the details and put teeth in your hands. So their caring went to the point of, how can I get through my next campaign saying that I care? And in a case in point on this particular amendment, you know, I had some people who helped out in the legislative arena, quite a few, but frankly, does the elected official whose name appears on the bill and whose, whose name is publicly associated with it, little to do mm-hmm. with the constitutional amendment and a lot to do with the fact that he was in a district that the, Re- the Republican Party wanted to protect uh, and wanted to make him look good in the campaign. So the bill was developed. We did the work on it. We got the language done and we handed it off to him to have his name on it. And uh, his name's on it. I mean, I, he, I assume he voted for it too. Yeah, he voted for it. And, you know, I'm not saying he was a bad person in any way, shape, or form and certainly cared about it, but it would have been, frankly, just as valuable in the political arena if it had been uh, a paper bill, you know, just a, uh, mm-hmm. a very ineffective bill as long as it looked effective. Yeah. So how how many law? I mean, there are some legislators who have strong views and who really care about uh, doing things. In fact, it seems like a lot of them do. How many would you say? Well, I would say that there's maybe 15% of elected officials that believe so strongly in uh, their ideological views, their political views, whatever it might say, that they'd be willing to lose an election over them. Mm. So the difference between having ideological ideas and views and willing to lose over them. So that might be 15, 20%. And those are all over the map. Mm. So you've got some that are hardcore left-wing pro-government folks, maybe they're you know, democratic socialist type folks. You've got some that are libertarian leaning. You've got some that are just really conservative. Some that are from religious perspectives. Um, some from all different dynamics. But I'm willing to say I'm willing to go down on this vote. I am not changing my position, uh, no matter what the Overton window says. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the reason why there's only 15 percent or so is, you know, there's a name for these type of lawmakers, and that name is losers of elections, <laughs> <laughs> because the Overton window doesn't care about your principles uh, in the sense that if you challenge it, even if it's with the best of intentions, you are risking your political career to take on the window. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, so how, uh, if you are a person that does have strong ideas uh, and, and you do find yourself winning one of these elections, like how can you actually work to advance your things within uh, whatever window uh, there might be on the issue of your choice. That was a number of ways. One is which you just got to be, you've got to look for overlaps. Overlaps between your ideology and what you believe in and the Overton window itself in a big sense. And then the interests of the narrower interests and narrower, smaller, I guess, Overton windows of other lawmakers which you have to interact with. And there's going to be some overlap. Mm-hmm. So you may find that 90% of the things that you really want to do are really outside of your ability to do them. But there's 10, 15% that you can do that you can throw yourself into. So one, that's one way is to throw yourself into the overlaps and work those overlaps. Another thing you can do, is, that you have to do, is if you're going to end up voting differently than many of your colleagues a lot, you've got to, you've got to adjust your behavior. So you're going to have to spend more time with your like, your colleagues than maybe you thought you'd have to, maybe even when you wanted to, mm-hmm. because you've got to have them understand that you are not uh, voting against them as individuals. 
that your political beliefs are sincere mm-hmm. and that um, you like them as human beings uh, and you respect their views, but you, you just can't vote with them all the time. Give me an example of this. Well, the one example I had is I, I as a state legislator on budget issues, there's a number of different budgets in the state, you know, 16 different budgets the state legislature votes on. And my policy was if any budget was increasing uh, in size beyond the rate of inflation, it was an automatic no vote, unless they're very expensive continuing circumstances. And one of the uh, 16 budgets was a, was proposed to go up above the rate of inflation, so I voted no on it. Well, tradition in the state legislature is when you get your first bill passed as a new lawmaker, you're supposed to give all of your colleagues in the legislature a token kind of a gift from your district. So in my district, uh, I had a candy company that manufactured candy. And so after I got a bill passed, I passed out little boxes of candy and everybody best. Well, the lawmaker in charge of the budget that I voted against stopped by my desk and threw the box of candy back on my desk with a little note that says, thanks, but no thanks. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew that he was personally offended that I voted against the budget that he had uh, worked on. And I knew I had work to do. So I made it a point uh, to go to his fundraiser uh, and show up uh, and to uh, ask him questions on bills that would come up that I thought he might have put insights on and to uh, sit next to him at, you know, caucuses. Mm-hmm. And over time, you know, so he understood then later that I, it wasn't that I didn't like him or didn't respect his work. It was a principled position and it had nothing to do with him individually. Mm-hmm. You can't do that kind of work. But there's another thing you like, do besides... Do they really have that thin of skins? I mean, he passed the bill, right? The bill passed, yeah. The bill passed. But, it, you know, I can understand their perspective. If they don't really know you, what they think is you're trying to show them up. Like, mm. you're better than them. Their bill isn't good enough for you. You could have done better. I could have done better, so I'm voting no. Uh, you know, because some people do that. There are some people who um, will look for any flaw in any piece of legislation for an opportunity to vote no and point out that flaw as if, you know, I'm not voting for this uh, road program because it uh, you know, doesn't fix every road in the state and pave it in gold. You know, so these extreme examples. So there are people who, you know, will vote no for self selfish reasons that are not socially uh, respected. Mm-hmm. I understand this position. I wanted to move away from the legislature a little bit right now and talk about some of your uh, your more re- recent work where you're a local taxpayer advocate as well as a township treasurer. How can you actually be an effective person on both things? Because it seems like uh, those might be in conflict. Well, uh, for years I've run an activist group called the Michigan Taxpayers Alliance, and our, one of our chief acts is to run campaigns against tax increase proposals that appear on local ballots. And we've been reasonably successful in defeating a number of those. And then, you know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, I ran for local township treasurer and, you know, won. And so now I collect taxes from nine to five and then fight them in the evening and weekends. Uh, so it is... It is two different hats I've got to wear, um, but it puts me in a good position for a number of reasons. Uh, one, there's only seven elected officials at the local level that are basically on the city council or township board in this case. Um, so you don't have to 
we'll win 110 state House members and 38 state senators and this and that. Two, you know, we were able in our most recent budget that we passed to lower our township tax rate by 4%. Now, that's not mind-blowing amount, but it's it's going the right direction. Uh, and and I, as I look forward to other issues that are coming up, because our, our parks and recreation millage is, for example, up for uh, – it expires in this upcoming year. And we have to be put back on the ballot. Well, uh, I I want to make sure that if that parks and rec millage gets on the ballot, it's not increased in any way, and hopefully decreased. Uh, but the fact that I've spent years running political campaigns against tax increase in millages makes my uh, makes people who are my colleagues and my department heads at the local level more conscious about what amount they want to ask for to put on the ballot. Uh, you know, do they want, many of them would like to roll it back up, head being slowly roll that millage down somewhat. Uh, for listeners that in the state of Michigan, if your property tax values in your, in your area keep going up, your uh, millage automatically uh, gets lowered so that, you know, it still allows for inflation adjustments, but you, um, prosperity can't mean that your local government just collects a lot more property taxes. And that's kind of what's going on there. So 20 years ago, it was passed out what they call one mill. It's been rolled down to about, you know, 0.77 mills. Uh, and so, um, of course, the expectation was that when it comes, when it gets put back on the ballot, it will be put back at one mill at, at the request of the voters. Well, that's not my expectation. And I want it to be at 0.77 or lower. Uh, and, you know, of course, I've got to win three other votes on the board of seven people. Um but not all votes are created equal in the sense that, uh, our low, uh, for example, our adjoining community, uh, a Chesterfield Township nearby us, they put on the ballot an in, uh, just this year uh, an increase in their library millage, and our tax group uh, opposed it. And so we ran a campaign and mailed flyers and did literature and ended up defeating that millage resoundingly. Like 77% of voters voted against uh, increasing the library knowledge in a neighboring community. Well, there's always a threat that a campaign against the millage increase could jeopardize it. So if you really want to put it on the ballot at a full mill, you're going to have to convince four uh, city council folks, and I won't be one of them, so four of the remaining six to put it on the one full mill. And then you got to ask yourself if you feel lucky. <laughs> <laughs> because if it fails... If there's a campaign run against it and it fails, you're left with no Parks and Rec Miller. You're left with dramatic cuts, substantial cuts in the parks budget, layoffs, and big slashing of programs. Or you could compromise and say, all right, we'll lower it a little bit mm -hmm. and ask for less. Uh, and then you'll get the votes you need on the council and there might not be a campaign ran against you. So you've got to ask yourself, you know, how greedy do you want to be? Yeah, and that's also kind of interesting because um, just the political incentives of being a township trustee is that your job is easier when the or when the township has more money. I mean, it it just is like uh, you see the direct consequences for you having more money, and you don't see the benefits of the residents having you know more money from uh, uh, from less property taxes. But in trying, even if uh, like for people who are a little restrained, they're still making two calculations at this point. They're saying what what are the odds that I can get this through the township board 
and what are the odds that people are actually going to um, uh, uh, going to vote for this? And what are the options that I have to make sure that we can maximize that? And you've kind of upset those calculations. Yeah, well, they work hard uh, to skew things in the favor of the yes votes on taxes. For example, a tactic is often that they will, let's say a tax doesn't expire, a current you know, property tax, so let's say the Parks and Rental Library, whatever it might be, might not expire for three, four years, but they'll ask for renewal two years in advance. That way, if it fails, then they'll ask for it again, one year in advance, and again, six years, six months in advance. In other words, the citizens that the, the no vote campaign has to win every single time. The yes vote campaign just has to win once, mm-hmm. and they get a 10-year renewal or a 20-year renewal. Uh, or they are careful, calculating what, on what ballot they want to put the renewal question on. So, you know, last March, uh, well, the March presidential primary, I should say, uh, recently was a, a favorite place to put tax increases in, uh, on the ballot because the Republicans already had Trump as their nominee for president and didn't need a, so they weren't likely to come out and vote in numbers in a March election when their nominees are decided. The Democrats had a number of candidates. So everyone knew there was going to be a much more strong Democratic turnout. So that's the place to pile on tax hikes. Uh, you want small turnouts favoring the type of voters that are likely to vote yes on your proposal. You get to pick and choose what ballot you want. Citizens don't get those uh, those luxuries, and tax fighters don't get those luxuries. Mm-hmm. Leon, thank you for sharing your experience about uh, moving within the Overton window. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a great, great discussion, James. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinaw with a C, like the island.